Good morning, church. Megan and I are very glad to be back home. We've missed you guys tremendously. We left on September 27th. It seems like a long, long time ago. We're not visitors here. We're, we're still a part of the church here. We're still fired up about New Zealand. And we're just so grateful to be back home. I want to thank the young brothers for preaching the word of God while we were away. So if Tyson, Cress, and Timothy could stand up, those guys preach the word. Future looks bright future is bright, and it was awesome to see Nathan get baptized, if you weren't aware of that. Nathan got baptized, very cool, and so much other stuff has been going on, we're excited to hear all the other good news. Before we have our lesson this morning, Megan and I would just like to share a little bit about our travels, and, and just to keep us all informed, if, if you don't know, if you're a part of our church, we're a part of a church that's connected internationally, hopefully you know that, if not, now you do, and if you're visiting this morning, this is information that is helpful, because it helps us frame who we are on the other side of the world and how we're connected to the entire world. So it's helpful to know what's going on. We went to America and that's our home country, but this is our home. Just to clarify that. And I also want to say big, big congrats to the Springboks. Way to go, man. That was awesome. Because when you put when you put green and black together, you get blue. So this is the best of both worlds. Springboks, all blacks, here we go. I'm not sure that's true, but it's worth a shot. So while in America, we were at what's called a delegates meeting. So every year our church meets and tries to figure out how to move forward in the best way that we can. So I'm going to fill you in a little bit about that. And Megan's going to share about what the women talked about in, in terms of the women's ministry as well. And then after we came back from America, we packed our bags and went over to Australia for our side of the world where we had our staff retreat there. So we'll tell you just a little bit about that. And here, here's what it looks like. Hopefully you can see that on the screen on the top. We have 700 churches worldwide, which is pretty awesome. So when you think about Auckland, think about the bigger picture as well. We're connected to 700 other churches, and it's divided into 33 geographical families. So one of which is the spa region, South Pacific. That includes our churches in this side of the world. And then each of those families of churches is overseen by a regional chair couple. So 33 families of churches across the world, and then 33 couples over see those. In our region, it is Mike and Tess Fontenot. They oversee our region of, of, of families known as a spa. But so that's kind of the bigger picture. But then when we met, we, we met three years ago to figure out how are we going to move forward as a church internationally? And so we, we voted on a new structure in 2018. And in 2019, we're just continuing to discuss how can we use this structure to move forward? If you try to move a group of 10 people, it's difficult. 100 people, 1,000 people, 10, but when you try to organize and lead a group of over 100,000 people, it's quite a task. And so please be prayerful as our, as our international fellowship really figures out how we move forward. This is the most simple way I can explain this, okay? And if this doesn't make sense, please come and talk to me afterward, afterward because I tried to make it as simple as possible, all right? So we have some cool terms, by the way, a catalyst team. That sounds pretty epic if you're on the catalyst team. But the catalyst team is, is the engine of our international church. There's no longer one 
person leading and overseeing the entire fellowship. There's a team, and it's called the Catalyst Team. But they work together with these three entities, task forces, service teams, and delegates. Megan and myself were delegates for our region. And so essentially, the Catalyst Team, they're supposed to have the big picture. Where are we going, and how are we going to get there? The delegates, like myself and Megan and 133 others across the world, we discuss, does this sound best? What are, let's have some questions. We discuss what the Catalyst team proposes. And then the task forces there and the service teams there provide more expertise for how to move forward. So all of that works together. The Catalyst team is kind of the overarching body. And then these other three entities help to move our church forward internationally. That's about three days of explanation packed into about one minute. Okay? So that's, that's a pretty simple oversight. But here's what it looks like on a more broken down level. So task forces, they're, they're basically temporary. So whenever needs arise, oh, by the way, it's good to see Tony Beeland here this morning from visiting from our church in Sydney. Hey, bro, I forgot to say hi to you. Side note. Um, our task forces, which is also a cool name, you got Catalyst Team, you got Task Forces. And so as a task force, if a need arises in our church globally, they assemble a task force. And that is designed to help out in a more temporary way to figure out what the need is and how we can solve that need. So there are several task forces, uh, church health and growth, unity, how do we stay unified? This, t- this team issued a call for any, any, any conflict in our movement, whether it's personal, church versus church, or leader versus leader. They issued the challenge to sort all of that conflict out before you come to Orlando in 2020. Which I thought is a good idea. So if you have conflict, you got several months to sort that out before you go to Orlando. But the next generation, that was an inspiring task force because they're figuring out what is our role and how do we play a part in our international fellowship. Communication, how can we keep it flowing? Global missions, how can we organize and strategize to save the world? And then the women's ministry as well. Let's figure out how what, what the role for the women's ministry is. And, and service teams, they're actually a bit more permanent. These, these needs won't really go away. So we'll always have teams that assemble, meet, and discuss how we can move forward in these areas. So elders. Our movement is always going to have elders. And so we need to figure out how they can guide and shepherd our fellowship. Teachers. Our fellowship of churches is always going to have those. They'll be the guys and the women that study out the difficult concepts and issue kind of here's what we think on this matter and here's what the scriptures teach us. So they'll always be helping us to guide us in, in those matters. Youth and family, that's never going to go away. We're always going to have young people. We're always going to have family. Campus, that's not going to go away. Communication, administration, singles, hope worldwide, which Duncan and Mary will talk about at the end of our service. And then lastly, the women's service team. And Megan's going to speak a little bit about the women's service team. Just a delegate. Okay. So when you're when you're a delegate, you go there and they say, This is what we want to propose, and then that you have to stand up a delegate and you raise your hand if you want to vote yes or no. And so we represent like our region and what our people from our part of the world might want. Um, so that's kind of how it works when you go to these meetings and they're proposing this is what we want to do, this is yeah. So in case you're wondering what goes on, but with the women's service team, so it's made up of 
15 women, uh, women leaders from these 33 regions. Um, and their, create, their goal is to serve um, and to equip the women, especially women leaders, uh, because if they can affect women leaders of all levels and of all you know, ways they lead, then it will trickle down to all the women in the ministry, in the churches, which is really awesome. And so in the moment, they're working on providing um, on our ICOC webpage, providing resources for every woman disciple that are specific to women or maybe what you're going through. Um, so, so keep an eye out for that on the webpage. They, they have a task force that's working on that. Um, and then on Facebook, they, there's, if you can write this down, womentoday.net, I think... I have it written down, right? No? Okay. Okay, so that's the women's service team. Oh, it's not on there. Okay, so write this down, womenstoday.net. I'll put it on our Facebook page as well. Um, but this is a specific Facebook page for the women's uh, service team. And what, they, what they're putting on there is information um, about what's going on with women's ministry all over the world. There's, gonna be, there's training sessions. There's even for the leadership program for the women's ministry at uh, 2020. The program's already on there. You can look at the classes. Um, and it's a great resource. And so one thing they're doing through uh, the Facebook page is going to start having webinars. So the first one is December, um, I think the next, December 6 and 7. And what this is, is you sign up to it and you go and participate. I don't know if you've ever been in a webinar. I actually haven't. A lot of people in the secular world do for their jobs and stuff like that. Um, but as someone is speaking, you can actually type questions from where you are around the world and they actually read it and answer you and you participate. Um, I think the the active on a webinar is about 200 women at a time um, and so there's going to be different topics that they're going to be teaching and then that will be recorded for all to watch and see later but if you want to actually participate and type you have to go to the Facebook page and sign up for it um, and then yeah participate on those dates and, and there'll be really awesome topics. I'm not sure all that they that they are but that's the first one coming up and then there's four planned for next year so even if you can't make it definitely go and check it out afterwards and see um and so it's a really great way for us to learn and grow from our fellow, fellow sisters all over the world. This kind of stuff is so important for us in New Zealand because we're the only church of our sisterhood churches in New Zealand. And so, um, yeah, to be connected and remember we're not alone is really helpful. Um, the other thing is that they've put out for the 2020 March 8th International Women's Day, they've already decided on a theme that they want all of the women's ministry around the world to join in. So it's hashtag in his image. Um, and it says that our hope for this day is that women's ministries across the world will take the opportunity to unite in a day of prayer and fasting and each women's ministry will consider how to act in his image and take steps of faith that will strengthen, encourage and reach more women for Christ this year, so in 2020. So what I'm asking you of the women's ministry is to think and pray about ideas for us for 2020. What do we want to do for International Women's Day? How can we participate um, and do great things for God? And then in general, what would you like to see in the women's ministry next year for 2020 on our calendar, um, our focuses? And I'm really, I'm trying to gather as much information at the moment so we can put out our church calendar by the end of the year and really... Um, um, build up the women's ministry. So I look forward to hearing from all of you.
can't see the title at the bottom, but it's called Next Generation. So those 40 and under is what's considered Next Generation in our fellowship of churches. And they had a luncheon, and somehow they let me slip in there. Although I'm 44, must have been my youthful look. So this was kind of a highlight of the time there, because it's, it's young men and women who are dreaming big dreams for God. And they're, they're fellowshipping and figuring out how can we put this into practice? How can we work together with the older generation? How can we bridge these gaps? And, and how can we move forward together? Because it is a bit complicated to do that historically. And so really pray for this part of it because these young men and women have big dreams to see God do big things in their parts of the world. So really be praying that God moves in a powerful way. Personally for me a highlight was just the fellowship. It was so good being energized and having great fellowship with brothers and sisters all over the globe. And you'll hear more of that come out as we talk about what's coming for next year. But in short, if none of that made sense to you, in short, our fellowship is united worldwide and we're moving forward. Amen? And if you want to talk more about that, we can talk more about that. But for now, let's open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 12. It's been quite a while since I've preached, but I'm excited to preach the Word of God. One last bit, when, when we did go to Australia, just a few things to, to let you know there. Our, our, our region is made of 11 churches in the spa region, and all of those churches are growing, which is exciting, and it's very healthy. Adelaide, uh, the city of Adelaide, Brandon and Megan Vassallo will go there next year to lead that church, which is very exciting. They're, they're coming back to the spa region. And if you know TJ and Leela from Fiji, they've served and done a great done great work in Fiji, but in May of 2020, they'll be going back to the U.S. to serve in the ministry there. So pray for Fiji as it tries to figure out what they'll do in the future as well. All right, Genesis chapter 12. Are you guys liking Genesis? Hopefully it's it's a great story and it's a great book and we learn a lot about what God can do in our personal lives, but in our communal lives as well. Let's pray together and let's read this chapter, talk about a few points from Genesis chapter 12. God, we're, we're humbled to be before you knowing that we're, we're flawed and limited, but yet your spirit really, really works powerfully in our lives to do something great on a personal level and on a church level. It's just all inspiring how you work with such wild and weird people to accomplish your task. We're humbled by that, God, and we pray that as we read your words, they, they really direct our minds and our hearts and, and help us to be closer to you closer to one another, and really inspired and energized to take this gospel message to Auckland, the country, the region, and the world, Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's read Genesis chapter 12 together, starting in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. And we all know where that is. That's such a a well-known landmark. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. 
The Lord appeared to Abram. So initially he just speaks. It's auditory. Go from your country. But at this point he actually appears to him in some kind of physical form and says, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Altars are familiar in ancient Near Eastern customs, but they would often sacrifice in a different way. And so Abraham is starting, starting to create something new for himself, for his family, and for all of us as he starts to learn to worship God. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And she's silent on this matter, implying she kind of agrees with this wild plan. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. That word disease is, is the same word that will happen when God puts plagues on Pharaoh later in the book of Exodus. So this is almost kind of a, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen during the Exodus. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? You flat godly man, you're acting worse than a pagan. That's kind of what Pharaoh, this is the guy later who says, I don't, who is this God? And yet this time he's rebuking Abram for acting in an ungodly manner. What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. And that ends chapter 12. If you were to think about the book of Genesis as a Netflix series, because everybody's watching Netflix these days, kind of a helpful way to process it. Season 1, in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 through 11, that really sets the tone for the rest of the Genesis story and for the rest of the biblical story. Creation, fall, but God's still interacting with humanity. And as the section closes, at the end of chapter 11, it introduces kind of the central character for season 2, Abram and his family. So season 2 of Genesis is Genesis 12 through 25. And that really puts the telescope or the microscope or the spotlight on Abram and his family. And it talks about him and his faith and his journeys for the next 13 chapters. So season 2 of Genesis, as we... As we make our way through will be Genesis 12 through 25. And so for this chapter this morning, let's look at two points from the book of Genesis chapter 12. Number one, answering the call. And number two, surrendering to the call. Are you guys there this morning? 
just curious. I've been away a long time. I forgot what it's like to be up here, and maybe you forgot what it's like for me to be up here as well. But let's, 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 let's remind each other what it's like to be together. Genesis chapter 12 starts with something very clear, and if your phone ever says that, you better pick it up. In verse 1, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. Now imagine this. This is wild. He's called to leave everything he's familiar with. Everything he's grown up with. Everything he knows. And go experience the unfamiliar. He's going from everything familiar to everything unfamiliar. And this eventually will set in the whole story of Israel and Jesus. And if you study out migration patterns, which is really exciting by the way, when you study migration during this time everybody was going to Ur and Haran. Not away from Ur and Haran. It was a major city economically, socially, and even religiously. They practice all this different kinds of religion and moon worship. And so, even in the last two decades, people are going to the U.S., to Asia, and Europe. That's the, that's the dominant flow of migration. You know, and you have these little ones that trickle elsewhere, like New Zealand. But in that day, everybody migrated to where he was. Not away from where he was. So he's leaving something very familiar. And Joshua 24 tells us that Abram's family probably worshipped the moon. That was, their, that was their system of religion. They thought the moon is God and that was their system. So Abram's leaving and breaking free of all of this that he's familiar with and grown up with. And he calls, God calls him to leave all of that behind. And this isn't the only time he calls Abram in this manner. Later in chapter 22, look at the similarities when God calls him initially and then when God calls him later to sacrifice his son. In chapter 12, it's, it's the trifold repetition. Leave your country, your people, your father's household. And you'll see it kind of gets bigger to more specific. The household being very intimate, right? That's the people that you're most connected to. In Genesis 22, take your son, your only son, whom you love. And so both times God is zeroing in on Abram and forcing him, calling him to leave behind what he's familiar with, what he's attached to, to answer the call of God. Now imagine that, that you know, everybody's attached to their home country, right? Is there anybody in here that's not? And if you are, don't raise your hand. Oh, Mika raised her hand. You don't know where you're from? I don't know where I'm from. But there's a sense of pride. You know, when we do the international service, we see the food and we see the dress and everybody kind of has some pride about their country and, and your people. And that's my people. And you feel connection. But then when you start talking about family, that's very intimate. That's, very, that's more specific. That's, that's where all the emotional ties come from. You grow up with them. They shape who you are. They help define who you are. And so, and so Abram's being called to leave all of that behind. At age 75. And this is a big deal. And I think we have to appreciate that he's, he's not familiar with Canaan. He's not familiar with these practices. He's not familiar with anything but what he's grown up with. And now he's being called to leave all of that behind. In a similar way, chapter 22. Obviously in those 10 chapters, he's become really attached to Isaac. That's the guy who's supposed to be the promise. Who's going who's gonna to bless him and give him lots of offspring. And now he's called to take this guy that he loves and sacrifice him. Perhaps he had grown too attached 
to him. But in both cases, Abram answers the call. He hears God call and he answers it, leaving behind what's familiar and everything that is unfamiliar. Is that right? Yes. Now, when you think about attachments, we all attach to different things, aren't we? I can look in your garage and tell what you're attached to or in your closet or under your bed, wherever you stuff your attachments. But everybody has these these kind of attachments and, and we do so since youth. That's Lelise when she was around two years old. And maybe you've seen that bunny. But someone gave her that when she was a young girl and she flat took that thing everywhere. We had babysitters come over one night and watch her and and they took her on a walk around the neighborhood and and they took the bunny with them and they actually dropped the bunny and lost the bunny. It was about eight o'clock at night. We come back and we said, how did it go? And they said, it went really well, except we lost the bunny. And I went into panic mode. Like, you lost the bunny. That's the, the lease was fine. (laughs) But but the bunny, what have you done with the bunny? So we go out with a flashlight around the neighborhood and somebody had found it and picked it and put it up on a stool. So we, we found the bunny. And Lelise was so excited. Well, she didn't know. We didn't tell, don't tell her that, by the way. But she, was, she still has that bunny in her room. Nine years old. But in, in, and throughout childhood, we see children get attached to different things, right? I remember when the Milburns gave Luke some soccer shoes and some shields for his shins. Shin guards. Shin pads. Yeah, I played soccer. I know all about it. Shields, but she, they gave Luke this, and the shoes were too big, and the shin guards were too big. But he put them on; he would not take them off. He wore them to places he wasn't supposed to wear those things. He was so excited about it; he just got attached to these things, and and it carries on through adulthood. I have shirts that I bought like six, seven years ago. I still have, and I still wear them like they're awesome until Megan gets hold of them. <laughs> these things we're attached to. If you've ever tried to help a family member clean out a closet or clean out a garage, some of you are like, "Uh uh-huh. But if you've ever tried that, you find there's strong attachment to things. Like very strong. And sometimes for no good reason. Other than I feel attached to this thing. And if you try to say, hey, I hope my mom doesn't listen to this podcast, but you know, they try to say, hey, maybe we could get rid of that. That's when you get the pushback. But, but you don't need that. This is an attachment and, 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 and it's just crazy. We become overly attached to these things. But the same happens spiritually in a very real way. Ultimately, these ideas or traditions or something we get attached to and it eventually becomes an idol to us. It rules us. We can't live without it. We think it's where we get our identity. We think it's where we get our freedom. And God is always going to be calling you and me and all of us to leave behind what we're attached to. And you see this crystal clearly with the rich young ruler. Mark 10 interacts with Jesus. Sharp guy. Excited guy. Has this challenging conversation with Jesus. And afterwards, Jesus says... Leave all your wealth behind, sell it to the poor, and then come follow me. See the flow there? Do that, then you're ready to follow me. You're too attached to this. And the Bible says right after that, his face fell. When you translate that literally, it says it became cloudy, overcast. His entire mood shifted. And he went away because he had great wealth. 
And, and, and you and I have things that we do get attached to. And God will call us and say, you need to leave those things behind. And we always need to answer the call for God. But the question is, what shifts your mood? What makes your face cloudy? When God says, hey, bro, hey, sis, hey, family, you need to leave this behind. And you, you know you're attached to it if it makes you shift the way you look. If it makes you feel uneasy. If you get defensive. And, and to move forward in our spiritual lives, we have to let God always call us from these things we're attached to. If you become a disciple in your youth, you probably have to leave things that your parents have been attached to. It's kind of normalcy for you to go to church, read your Bible. It's kind of a system you grow up in. But you become attached to pleasing your parents. And so at some point you have to leave that behind. You, cannot be, you have to be more concerned about what God thinks and what pleases or displeases God. When we become disciples later in life... You know, a lot of us have established these patterns of thinking and behavior that are like deeply ingrained. And when you become a disciple, you're called to leave those behind. And you understand you, you need other people to help you grow in your spiritual life. And as you and I age spiritually, you know, we get attached to specific mindsets or specific ideas. And often it's, it's, it's what gets us stuck. We become attached to these things that aren't necessarily truth and what happens is is to keep answering the call we have to orient our lives around truth not what you feel and not what you feel is true but actually true and if you don't your life will be shaped by an idol and not by truth and we can never lower this call. And, 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 I, and, and I love the, our fellowship and, and our church and the way we're growing. And, but as we move on as a church and as we think about continuing to spread the gospel, we always have to make sure we hold a high call for people to answer. Yeah. Following Jesus is a big deal. Yeah. And when we figure out what they're attached to, we have to call them from that. And in our fellowship, when we find that we're growing too attached to things, we have to call each other from that and be able to speak truth to one another. This has an inspiring side too, by the way. Because Abram is called to live something for something bigger than himself. And, and when that's the call, there's way more incentive. There's way more motivation to live that way. I love following the story of Colossi and the All Blacks, you know, his, his story and, and how he was the, the captain and how he would bring the country together. But it was this idea, I'm playing for something bigger than myself. And that always inspires people. And when you become a disciple, you're not living for self, but something bigger than yourself for now and evermore. And so we always have to remember this is part of our job, helping people say, you don't want to live for self. You want to live for something bigger than yourself. That's what Abraham is doing. He's saying, man, a nation... I'm going to be a blessing to those people and to those people and to all generations. That's a big dream. And I want to live for something bigger than myself. Why would anyone leave this behind though? Why would anyone leave these things behind? Well, we have a model of Jesus leaving everything behind, don't we? Imagine if the scripture said there was a council and God said, I have a plan and I'm going to send Jesus to humanity and he's going to live, he's going to die and he's going to resurrect. And here he is, here's Jesus. And he says, you know what? I'm sorry, I'm not really willing to leave heaven. I'm too attached, too familiar. I'm too comfortable. I'm not really ready to start my life over again as a little baby. That's too much. 
I mean, we have the most inspirational story on the planet. A God leaving heaven, everything he's attached to, to save you and me. And in my mind, I would leap from heaven and enter earth with like an Avenger pose and hit the ground and it would crack. And I would say, I'm here. But he doesn't. He leaves and he comes as a child. He answered the call to give us a model of answering the call as well. Secondly, you have to surrender to the call as well. And during this story, you'll see this over and over and over. If you read verses 1 through 8, and you just stop there, you think, Father Abraham, amen. You know, you get fired up about it. That song is interesting. It's like, what does moving your arms have to do with Father Abraham anyway? Like, theologically inaccurate, isn't it, Raymond? As many sons, now I'm faithful. <laughs> now I'm more faithful. <laughs> but anyway, in verses 1 through 8, he's, he's like the icon of faith. And it's awesome. And then, verses 10 through 20, it shifts a little bit. And the Bible says, when the famine hits, and, and that's what that, that text says, right? He went to live in Egypt, verse 10. Now, when he was called to Canaan, it was a very clear call from God. Go to Canaan. There was no clear call in this instance to go to Egypt because there's famine. Or even to go and, and just buy some supplies, much less go and live for a little while. And so where did this idea come from? Well, he's familiar with that. Hey, we're, we're in a tight spot. I'm not hearing anything from God. Here's the plan. We'll go to Egypt and live for a little while and make this journey. And while he gets to Egypt, of course, he develops this crazy plan. You know, I, you're my sister. And what about the promise? God said, through your offspring. And now he, he's putting the, one of the main characters in jeopardy, his wife. He's saying, hey, here's the deal. You, let's say you're my sister, which is partially true. And, but he, he says this phrase, I, I know you're a beautiful woman. That's such a great phrase. If, if it ended there, it'd be awesome. You know, the husband, I know you are a beautiful woman. But here's the plan I have. I'm going to let you go into another man's household. Like what wife in their right mind would agree to that? That's bizarre. That's crazy. And here Abraham has stooped to this kind of wild idea. And, and it's not necessarily that it's, it's unfounded. Because he says, hey, they see you. They see you. And she's 65, by the way. He says, I know you're a beautiful. That's what I say to me. I know you're a beautiful woman. I know you'll be beautiful past 65. And as I old and I get gray, you have to pray for the Lord to give you strength. <laughs> but that's what he says to his wife. And, and he says... Here's the plan. It's, it's such a crazy thing. It sounds so bizarre. He says, if they see you, they'll let you live, but they'll probably kill me. And you think, really? Would that really happen? Well, what did David do? When he saw Bathsheba. Sleeps with her and kills her husband. So th this isn't like preposterous. You know, this kind of stuff. And David was a godly man. And here he's entering into this, this uh, you know, unfamiliar territory. And, and he goes down and, he, and he, the plan, they put the plan in motion and it mostly works. I guess depending on how you look at it. But I don't think he expected Pharaoh to take his wife into his house. And this is where it gets crazy. And, and that, that, that phrase, he takes him, Pharaoh takes her as his wife. It's also used in other parts in Genesis where it involves intimacy. And so now things get really tricky. 
He thought, here's the plan. If, 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 if we just protect you, everything will go well. We'll get some goods. And, and now it's gone down and he hasn't thought this would happen. And, and look what's happened. And he doesn't even go and pursue her when she gets in, into Pharaoh's court. You think, oh no, i got to go retrieve my wife. Because that's what he does with flat out Lot. When Lot gets taken, he gets, arm, he gets an army. And here, man, what's going on in his mind? He, he's kind of developed these wild plans. And, and then Pharaoh comes and rebukes him and says, get out of here. What have you done? You're worse than me. You're worse than a pagan. Take your stuff and go. And they leave. And imagine that conversation from Egypt on the way back to Canaan. With Abram and Sarah. That's crazy. That's flat out crazy. And there's certainly this, this learning curve for Abram, who in verse 1 through 8, God, I hear you, I'm going. And he goes to Canaan, and now he doesn't hear God, and he thinks of his own plan. He hasn't quite learned to surrender to the call, and, and, and although he prospered, this is the crazy thing about trying things your own way. It might work. I mean, he gets lots of goods. Lots of silver and gold, and he comes back with all this stuff, and so in some sense it worked. But look at the consequences. Man, that, that, that surely that disrupted his marriage. Surely that disrupted his mind. And, and it all started because of a famine in verse 10. Throughout Genesis, you'll see the patriarchs. That's, how they keep, that's why they keep going back to Egypt. Hey, things are bad. There's a famine. Let's go to Egypt. Egypt has the Nile, it's well watered, Canaan not so much. And so, they, hey, things aren't going well, they don't wait on God, they keep going back to Egypt. And when this famine hits, instead of surrendering to God, he's not building altars now, is he? He's not calling on the name of the Lord now, is he? He's just saying, let's, let's go to Egypt, I have a plan. And, and, I, and I think that unfortunately he has to learn this. I always must surrender to the call. I can never take matters into my own hands. And, and what happens as a result of this, because Lot goes with him and, and Lot's descendants will eventually become enemies of Israel, there were far-reaching consequences for this decision. Because he didn't surrender to the call. And part of that involves being faithful during famines. You know, there's all kinds of famines through history. People are familiar with them. Even in the 20th century, millions have died because of famines. But Ur and Egypt weren't familiar with them. Because of the Nile. They were always well watered. They always had, except later in Genesis, when, when God kind of causes that famine. And so this, this image of a famine will come up over in the scriptures where it's God kind of taking away everything you think you need and forcing us to surrender. To rely on God and not self. And you think, oh, the famine is what caused Abraham to leave. No, the famine is what exposed his lack of surrender. That's what famines essentially do. Do you trust in God or do you trust in self? Jesus himself uses the same imagery when talking about the prodigal son. He goes away, spends everything he has. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. And what did that drive him to do? Go back to his father. Forgive me, I have sinned. I'm willing to be a servant. That's the image of what famine is supposed to produce. I need to turn back to God. I need to surrender to the call. I need God's help. 
And, and this is an important aspect because if you're a Christian or even not a Christian, you're going to face some kind of famine in your life. And it, it's going to squeeze you and it's going to pressure you and it's going to force you to look to a being outside of yourself. Because you, you, you may have a plan and your plan might work for a while, but consider the consequences, the long-reaching consequences when you try things on your own. If you've been a disciple for a while, you've been through famines, some of them you probably failed, but prayerfully you've learned from and learned to rely on more on God. And so what does it look like when you face famines? Well, there's been so many families that have migrated to New Zealand, and that's awesome. But you know what common thread is they come for a better life and they're willing to exchange kind of security and economic status over their spirituality. That's just, that's just a pattern that's happened. They put those things first and they say, it's hard when you migrate. Yes, but surrender to God. And we see it even more fine-tuned when they start looking for jobs. And they say, I'm willing to take a job that takes me away from God and the fellowship for an undefined period of time. And I understand it's complex and complicated, migrating, but I also understand the call of the Scriptures. Where we're called to leave everything behind. We can't, we can't soften the call and make mediocre discipleship. We always have to surrender to this call. And we've had conversations with families that aren't inside of this church, are not inside of this church, who have wanted to move from other churches closer to New Zealand and for economic reasons. And we've been very clear. It's not a good idea. Move close to the spiritual family. And it, I, I, we, we say these things crystal clear so there's no ambiguity. And yet they choose not to do that and now they're reaping the consequences of that. Suffering in their faith. And it's hard as me to say, what did you expect? I still have to be compassionate and loving and try to help them come up with plans, but surrender to the call. You could have surrendered in the first place. And this is a lesson for all of us. In, 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 in youth, there's always this famine of, am I going to find a relationship? Am I going to find the right person? And yes, be faithful. Surrender to the call. Don't try things your own way. It will not work, and you will reap serious consequences. Parenting and raising kids and think, man, you know, my kids are this age, and, and it's not working, and now they're getting teens, or now they moved on. You know what? Still surrender. God can still work when we're faithful to the call. In our personal lives, when there's challenges of life, health, spiritual, emotional, we'll feel tempted to try things our own way. But God wants us to surrender to the call, always and forever. And we do that by inviting other people into our lives. I'm experiencing famine. I don't want to encourage me right now. I want truth. Tell me the truth of what I need to do. I don't want, I, I just speak truthfully to me. So I surrender during this famine. And the end of the matter, Genesis 12, is all about a fickle and faithful guy, Abram, who represents us, the model of faith. And aren't we faithful and fickle at times? And God still works with us. And don't we experience famine? And sometimes we fail and sometimes we succeed, but God still works with us. So let you and I and let us be a fellowship that always answers the call to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And let you and I and us always be a fellowship that surrenders to the call and allows the power of God to develop into us as we take the gospel into New Zealand. Amen. Amen.